There have been a lot of great hockey players over the years. Legends, both on and off the ice. The Overtime Podcast checks in with some of hockey's biggest names and talks about what these great players are up to today. Welcome to the Overtime Podcast. Here's your host, Gino Retta. Hey, hockey fans, welcome to the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. I'm your host, Gino Retta. There are so many great players who played the great game of hockey over the past few decades. Players who made an impact not only on the game itself, the teammates, the fans, the sport. On this week's show, we're joined by one of hockey's biggest personalities, a 15-year veteran in the NHL, Stanley Cup champion, the New York Rangers. Since his retirement in 01, he's continued to be a big presence in hockey, served as the director of player affairs for the NHLPA from 07 to 09. He's been a color analyst for TSN, CBC, Rogers. He'll take cash wherever they'll send it. And in 2017, he served as the executive director of the NHL Alumni Association. We're pleased to welcome Glenn Healy. Healy Hills, great to talk to you again, my friend. Well, Gino, thank you very much. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the crave. Download the 7Now delivery app, and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious crave crushers to your door almost before you can say, fuel me up, Sev. You know the crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just eleven sixty nine. Order a large, hot-from-the-oven-in-minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a 2-liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats, 24-7. You know, really appreciate the fact you got me fired from TSN. And uh, then I had to go somewhere else, so that's the reason the long list. But, uh, hey, I enjoyed working with you guys and the group at TSN. And I I remember the very first day that we got the rights, and it was going to be a national show. And we had that first rehearsal. We had the band, (laughs) had the monkeys. The puppets, the puppets. Puppets we had. Like, it was a complete circus. And I thought, how are we going to pull this off? Oh, I forgot the rink, too. Yeah, the rink as well. We did. We had the, the fake dice. And now James Duffy won't talk to us. I mean, yeah, it's. He's a wheel. Whatever. He's a wheel. In the, in the hall, when we pass each other, he just got, uh, because he's forgotten my name. First guy that I know had his own dressing room. Yeah. And I'm like, I had my own parking spot. I don't know if you knew that. I did not know that. It took, it took me years after. I think I've got your old spot. When you left, I think I got your spot. I was right up front. It said visitor. And I used to park there all the time. And security would come in and go, is anybody driving, you know, a Honda Accord and parked in visitor? There's never a time in your life where you drove a Honda Accord, you liar. My first car in Los Angeles was a, yeah. uh, well, actually, it was a Ford Escort with no air conditioning. Oh, and how'd you do a Ford Escort with no AC in California? How's that freaking possible? Bad mistake. That's that's called Alan Eagleson and not making any money. Uh, and, and then I had the Honda Accord, which was $111 a month. And that thing got so bad that if you put $10 of gas in, five would just leak out of the tank. And it became like a flipped coin to see whether my wife or I were going to go to the gas station. No, you go, you go, no, you go. And it broke down in Long Island while I played with the Islanders. And I took the plates off and I left it on the road. And I don't know what has ever happened to it. My first car was a 1967 Dodge Corvette 440, but I got it way into its lifespan. And I remember there was officially a tipping point where filling the tank with gas made the car more valuable than it was on empty. Oh, yeah. So, and yeah. I knew it was time. 
mine would have been more value too if I could have kept all the gas I tried to put in the car in the tank. But and and every time I pull up the gas station, someone would say, "Hey, hey buddy, you're leaking gas there." I'd be like, "I know, yeah, shut I know. up, just yeah, give me a minute. I'll get out of here." We've so, come a long way, brother. Your first NHL deal, what was it, like 70K? Your first, your first uh, NHL first contract? Thing, you know, I, I was a complete super sleuth negotiator. Uh, they used to have uh, three-way deals early on. I was on. not aware there was a three-way deal. You would have your NHL deal, so 70000 yeah. in the NHL, which I thought was an, an enormous amount of money, uh, more than any Healy had ever made in their lifetime. And uh, you would make 23000 if you played in the minors. But they also had a third component – that if they sent you to the IHL, you could make a grand total of about 11 grand. Oh. And I negotiated this oh. massive contract of only having the two-way deal. And uh, that that was me thinking I was Gordon Gecko, like I had arrived. <laughs> Look out. Do you not find that amazing? I, I think you're in a similar situation to mine. Your parents immigrated from Europe, same as my parents did, uh, from different parts of Europe, obviously. But I remember signing my first deal at TSN and... I told my dad how much I was going to pay in taxes that year. And he said, I've never made that much in a year. Like the salaries that our parents made compared to what we ended up making in our careers, just kind of throws you for a loop, doesn't it? I, my dad fought in World War II for five years for free. <laughs> so yeah. uh, his last day in the British military was when they blew up the King David Hotel. I've got a picture of him on the hotel. He was, sorry, he was serving five years? Like, he had to serve the full five years in the war? Well, after the war was over, there, we still had peacekeeping. It was still oh, okay. going on. And that might have been the first terrorist act uh, in, in Palestine with the King David Hotel getting blown up. Yeah. And so he was forced to, uh, to continue that on. And then it was a choice. Come to Canada. No job. Two pounds to emigrate. Think about that. Right? The Niner Diner at TSN. You can't even <laughs> buy anything there for two pounds. Okay. Not even the gravy boss, okay, who no, he asked me every day when I ordered a Caesar if I wanted gravy. Gravy on that, yeah. Thanks, buddy. Anyways, uh, or stay in Scotland, no job, no money. So they came to Canada. But, yeah, a big difference. A funny story as we have the World Cup of soccer on. Uh, so, you know, clearly Scottish family, soccer, football is a big part of, yep. of what we were all about. And I signed a big contract. You know, I, I turned the worm here. So I went way past the 72 and had deals with an M on the end. And uh, nice. I, signed with, I signed with the Rangers. And my dad was aghast that I would sign with, because again, Celtic Rangers, right? Yes. Yes. Oh, even the name, even the name, even though completely unrelated. Yeah. So uh, I signed with the Rangers and he was he was so concerned about what my family would say back in Scotland. Then I told him the amount, and he basically goes, I don't give an F what they think. Go <laughs> sign that deal. <laughs> what did he think when you said you wanted to be a goalie? Like, how did that How did that happen? Like, I had Marty Brodeur on the show a couple of weeks ago, and I've spoken to Roberto Luongo, and both of them say, I was never meant to be a goalie. You know, I was 10 or 11 years old before I ever went in the net. How did that happen to you? So I played uh, when I first, you know, first started playing the age groups. It was a Catholic hockey league called Holy Redeemer. We were the Holy Redeemer flyers feared throughout the land. Well, yes. not really, but the age groups were four to nine. So the nine-year-olds were really good. And the four-year-olds were really stinky, but we were all playing together. And so what well, uh, you're on the same ice surface with nine-year-olds. Yep. Yeah. Well, it's, it's a Catholic league. I mean, we're just trying to get some teams together here. Okay. You know, we can't be choosy now. Um, so, you know, you would work on the buzzer system. So you would get on the ice, you play your two minutes and 
but they go off. You go make your way back to the bench, and you're back on again. Yeah, I never got to the bench, got off, or got back on. I couldn't skate, and so I spent the whole year. I never touched the puck once, and I remember I had a pair of Gordie House skates. And at the end of the year, the coach asked my dad, "You know, my dad's name was Joe. Did you ever get those skates sharpened?" And my dad had that blank look, like sharpened. What do you mean? You need to get your skate sharpened? So I spent the whole year without any sharpening on my skates. So That's the next hilarious. we needed a goalie. So my dad thought in his infinite wisdom, make him a goalie. Let the puck come to him. So he was he was a coaching genius in a lot of ways. And that's that's how it started. And uh, like probably the other goaltenders, my uh, first set of pads, you're not going to believe this, Gino, but they actually fell off a truck at the Legion in Pickering. <laughs> I've had stuff fall off trucks before. So here I was as a six-year-old kid with goalie pads that were fit for a 15-year-old. Oh, beautiful. Horsehair? Were they the old horsehair ones where they get wet and they weigh 58 pounds each? The Titanic in the nets. Like, I couldn't move. Uh, and it was okay until I turned about 15 and then they were below my knees and I was getting hit with pucks in the knee. And You always wore the small pads, though. Oh, that's probably I was preconditioned based on frugality and cheapness and the fact we had no money. <laughs> Just keep wearing them. So I, I did recall going to my mom and dad saying, I'm, I'm getting hurt. Uh, I'm getting hit in the knees. We need to do something here. We need to do something. And my dad calmly looked at me and just told me to catch the pucks and shut up. <laughs> so I, then I became pretty good with a glove hand because I had had to catch the pucks or end up at an emergency room. So And you made a career. You ended up, you never, you had an opportunity to play in the OHL, but you didn't go that route. You went the Western Michigan route. What, what was that all about? Well, there was a couple of factors. One, I met with uh, the coach at the Peter Road time was Mike Keenan. So I had my first introduction to him and I thought playing for the welcome to hockey the Hun wouldn't be a good thing. So let's get away from him. (laughs) But beyond that, it was, did he ever smile? Did you ever see him smile? Mike? uh, I never saw him smile. I worked with him for years. I covered him for years. I never saw him smile. You get him about 15 beers and he smiles, or maybe he doesn't even know he's, he's lost all the feeling in his face. Oh, just kind of that that grumpy sutter look anymore but the uh the reality was i wanted to get an education and uh my parents pushed me that way too because you know if you if you uh, learn you earn and it's a lot of pressure away from me making the nhl i didn't have to worry about making it if i didn't make it i had two degrees from western michigan which which would equate i guess to like a babysitting degree uh but I had enough that if it didn't work out for me, that I could I could go out and enjoy that next journey. But it did work out, and so yeah. in some ways the the career was uh, enhanced by the fact the pressure was off because I had something to fall back on. But I was going to college right from the start. It was not I'm not That's flipping awesome. the coin and trying to make it. I was going to go and and make it and get a degree, and uh, and it was a great four years, best that I had. Full disclosure, uh, we're in conversation with Glenn Healy, executive director of the NHL Alumni Association, 15 years in the league. I got to cover your 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 career, the, uh, the latter part of your career when I was in broadcasting and some pretty successful runs. And I'll tell you, one of the great memories you gave me was the Stanley Cup's the Stanley Cup. But the year before that, you playing for the Islanders and you're in the playoffs uh, I covered the Pens back-to-back Stanley Cups in 91 and 92. Ridiculously talented team, obviously, led by Mario and Yager and those guys. And you guys faced them in the playoffs. And I'm like, okay, well, all the prognosticators know that 
the Owls have got no chance against the Pens. And then start things start to unfold in that series like I've rarely seen in the Stanley Cup playoffs before. Walk me through what your mindset was going into that series because I know what my mindset was. This is a walk. This is a no-brainer. And you're facing two-time Stanley Cup champion Penguins in the playoffs in 93. Well, so if you recall, we we had our, our best player was Pierre Turgeon, and yep. we defeated the Washington. I just bumped into him a couple of weeks ago at the Legends game at the Hall of Fame stuff. Looks like he could still play. He's in great uh, shape. You know, Pepe scored what would have been the series clinching goal against Washington with just over a minute or so left. And uh, 45 minutes after he had scored his goal and celebrated, um, and he was in the shower having a shower, uh, that's when Hunter decided to hit him from behind. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm exaggerating. But that, heels, heels is joking here, but it was an extremely late. late hit. Today, if he does that today, Heels, he's gone for life. So that that was a disappointing thing because we lost our best player. And so we go to play the Pittsburgh Penguins. And you're right. They had a number of Hall of Famers, Yager and this Lemukes guy. I I can't remember how to pronounce his name, but man, he was good. Thank God you're still not in broadcasting. Francis. And they they had everybody. And uh, that sound you hear was our when we open our locker room door. It was like the sound of of goats, like mad (laughs) lambs to slaughter. slaughter. (laughs) How are we going to beat this team? And, And it was Al Arbor, who actually took a chair and he sat in the middle of the room. And he sat everyone down and he went to Pat Flatley and he said, Flats, and he called him Secretariat because Flats had the skinniest legs. <laughs> Proud of that because Secretariat had skinny legs too and he yeah. was really fast and Flats wasn't. Uh, but he asked him if he could just tie one shift against Mario. Just tie it. Of course, the answer is yes, I could tie yeah. it. One shift. Then he went to Ray Ferraro, who was the seagull. Because if he wasn't squawking, he was... Okay, I'm jotting down all these nicknames for when I have these guys on the show. Oh, could you tie a shift against Merritt? Yes, I could tie a shift. And as we went around the room, good, period one done. Now go to period two. We did it again, rinse and repeat. And then it came down to, guys, all we need to do is win one shift in game seven in overtime. And we win the series. Nice math. Three young defense, you know, Vasky, Kasparitis, and Malikoff, all rookies. We had no... Uh, position even being on the ice with that team. And yet it came down to game seven and a Pittsburgh Penguins defenseman stepped on the ice on a change, took a step forward instead of a step backwards. And that jumped Ferraro and Volek to a two on one. And David put the puck in the net. And uh, it was again, probably one of the bigger upsets in a lot of ways. And, you know, the ownership there, they wanted David Volek traded all year. And I can recall standing with Al in Pittsburgh, down by where the bus is. He was uh, very elated that he had beat the great Scotty Bowman because Scotty had all the best teams, right? Good well, team. Scotty was Chicago. talking about that, yeah. Montreal might have been a good team in the six yeah. season. I don't know. <laughs> As an analyst, I'll say they were pretty good. Yeah. And so here we were, we beat them. He was happy with that. And the ownership came down and, and they were elated. And, and Al looked at them and basically – you know, other than tell him to get lost, said, what do you think of David F and Volek now? Because <laughs> they wanted him traded all year. But uh, it was a it was a complete upset in a lot of ways. And in fact, going to game seven, we won in game six. So we stayed alive. And in game seven, we didn't even have a flight booked. So we had to fly out of two different airports. Because you thought there was no chance. 
Who can't? What? We got to book a flight. <laughs> Save the money. Okay, so we half flew out of LaGuardia, half flew out of MacArthur, and we landed in Pittsburgh and got on Chitty Chitty Bang Bang and then made our way to, uh, to what would have been Game 7. But, yeah, that was an exciting time, and I, I looked at that group, and, and all of us, we to this day, are still a close group, and we still stick yeah. together, and we still probably look at that team, even the Stanley Cup team in 94, we look at that group with as fond a memory as the team that won a championship the next year. What a what a legend, Al Arbor. Like you, you kind of skirted by like the guy. The guy was just a legend. Uh, you know, it's just like story after story of the kind of stuff like that he's been able to do. Second father to a lot of guys. Yeah. When you needed uh, to have your arm, uh, his arm put around you, he did. He helped yeah. you through a lot of different things uh, in life. He wanted us to be not great players, but great ambassadors, and he, he gave us some real life lessons. Uh, but when you were full of yourself and thought you were all that in a bag of chips, he was the first one to stick his foot so far up your ass. You were flossing <laughs> your teeth with your shoelace. Oh, I guess. I all guess the visual. All the visual heels. Thanks for that, brother. Uh, no problem. But uh, that was Al. But he was a wonderful man. And, uh, you know, before he died, there were there were a number of us. And Ray Ferraro was one of them. And Pat Flatley we, and Mully, we all went down to see him. I, I didn't want to wait till someone has a funeral and then we show yeah. up and show reverence there. I wanted to tell him what I really thought of uh, because he Good made it in my life. And we did and uh, flew down, met with him and flew back the same days. And I, I'm so glad we, we made that trip. In conversation with Glenn Healy, executive director of the NHL alumni association today, 15 year NHL uh, veteran. And uh, you mentioned the cup final, obviously, you know, one of the pinnacles of your career, People often wonder, how did Heels go from a major successful playoff run with the New York Islanders to the New York Rangers? <laughs> Probably like th that whole transition of that is in and of itself insane. What's crazier is the way the, the, the deal, the trade actually transpired. Do you want to walk us through? Because that was the expansion draft year. Do you want to walk us through that or do you want me to give the background of that? So I, I think it started with, you know, there were, I had a contract that was due and it was expired. Yeah. And my good buddy, Pat Flatley, decided to write down on a napkin my contract demands and give it to the owners at our year end party. <laughs> and the owners crumpled it up and threw it at me. So at that moment. Good start, Heels. <laughs> I, I knew I'd lost some negotiate uh, skills here and the balance of power had switched. So they were looking to go into a, a different direction. Maybe they didn't believe, maybe they thought it was just a two week fluke. I, I don't know, but end of the day, expansion draft happens. And now envision this, there's six of us over in Ireland on the West coast. I don't have a cell phone. I don't have a house phone. What were you doing in Ireland? Drinking. What do you oh, think we're doing I mean, in Ireland? from drinking? That's obvious. Was that still celebration from yeah. the previous year? I haven't stopped. We're still doing it now. It's perfect. Uh, Seems like last week. But, you know, we're having a great time, misbehaving. Every old pub you could ever go in, loving the music, music festival in Listoon Varna. We're having a great time. And uh, I get picked up by Anaheim. They call me. Welcome to the expansion draft. Can't get a hold of me. Yep. Oh, okay. The next day, Tampa's allowed to pick one player from because they had rules from expansion the year before. Yep. They picked me. Try to call me. Welcome to the team. No phone, no cell phone, no house phone. No one's picking up. So they're thinking I'm a complete, you know what? 
And then the Rangers are allowed then to make a trade and they trade for me uh, and take me out of Tampa. They had lost John Van Beesbrook, so they wanted to fill his position. They thought I'd be a good fit, even though the Rangers and Islanders never make a trade and hate each other. So it was probably two and a half weeks after the initial um, move was made before I even got back to anybody to go, hey, it's me. It's me calling. <laughs> I'm back. Were you sober by that point or were you still in the bag? Oh, yeah, we were, we were fine. We uh, we re- a really good group. We bonded well over there. Yeah. It was actually uh, Pat Flatley's mom who, when Pat called to check in on her, she in her Irish brogue told him that you're not going to believe it, but Glenn's a ranger. And we were in disbelief. That's how you found out? Made her get the newspaper and read him what it said in the newspaper because we didn't believe it. And at That's that point, uh, you know, our hey, all those years of the New York Islanders and, and just the great things we had built uh, ended up. We went and I was now a New York Ranger and things happened for a reason. Yeah, uh, that team was as good as we were on the aisle. The team in New York was just better. You could see from day one. Oh, and- your topic was amazing because now you're 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 jumping onto the Rangers bandwagon as they're like in a huge arc upwards from a team that hadn't done squat like in terms of winning the cup in 54 years to that point well squat the the year uh before with two games or so left to go in the season uh the islanders beat the rangers in overtime so that was it for their season their season yep. was over. shut them down I happened to be one of the stars that night in the game mm-hmm. and i came on the ice without my gloves and decided to tell the fans with one of my fingers what I thought of them. And they were pelting beer down and like, you name it. And here I was two months later, you're now in New York. Wearing their uniform. (laughs) I love you guys. I love you guys. Uh, But yeah, no, it was a, it was a year we started the the season um, in London, England, the mustard French's cup. You recall, we played the in a three game friendly and it was uh you know, the team was put together. We didn't bring extra players. We just went with our team. And you could see that uh, the team from Mark Messier to Adam Graves to the Kevin Lowe team men business, that the year before the embarrassment of not making the playoffs was enough to motivate a group that had numerous championships, probably north of 40 Stanley Cup rings in the locker room. And they're proud guys, and they weren't about to fall off their, their bike second time. And we didn't. But could you imagine, though, that heels like that's an insane turnaround from missing the playoffs to winning the Stanley Cup that year? That's crazy. Did you guys at what point in your room did you think, okay, we do have something special here? We've got guys who've done things other places and we maybe can do something here together. From day one. Really? Come on, heels. Everybody believes it from day one, but I can bring in my character witness, which is my wife. I can recall the first day of training camp. I said, this team could win. Like these guys are. They're fast. They're good. They're, there's nothing that's really missing with this team. The pace of practice was enormous. And and Mike, hey, it was a pretty short leash for everybody. So, yeah. you know, hey, he's, he's he's like that that milk crate best before. And you only get a short best before with Mike. But man, oh, man, can in a short period of time, can he make a difference? And he did. But you can't have a guy like Brian Leach on your team and not be great. You can't have Kevin Lowe. And not be yeah. great. It had not nine of the players on the team could have been captains of that team and on any team. Craig McTavish went from captain of the Oilers, took the biggest face off in Ranger history, but took a fourth line role. Didn't care. Yeah. Mike Richter's sweaters in the rafters, like the, the greatest Ranger goalie of all time. 
next to the other number 30, which is me, but they just put the wrong name on the sweater. No, it's the wrong name. It's just the name. The number is the right number. You had the Swedish guy, whatever his name yeah. is. But quite frankly, it, it was a really good, deep team. And even as good as we were at the trade deadline, we still made your show really good because we made like six trades. <laughs> so were you was- not, be honest though, were you not worried in the final? Were you not worried that it was slipping away from you after all that you guys had accomplished? Well, you know, it's funny how your emotions go, but after game one, I, I, we outshot them probably three to one. Yeah. I think it was 52 to something, 12, 14. They won. Oh, boy, that that's a tough one to lose because, you know, you worked hard to get there. Yeah. One, you deserve to win, and now you're down one, and you've lost home ice. The next three, we kind of handled them pretty pretty good. Um, yeah. Because we got our act together. Looked like you got the wake-up call and you were going to be Yeah. And then we decided to plan the parade and fans coming in and family coming in. I remember we went public with all that. Like, the the parade route has been planned and the the Rangers have done all this kind of stuff. And I thought, man, are you guys making a mistake here? Never put the end result first. You've got to work first and the end result comes. And so, yeah, it slipped away a little bit. And I can tell you after game six, uh, we had two days off between six and seven. And that really helped us to to get our heads around the fact that, look, if you had said at the start of the year, one game to win it all for the Stanley Cup, would you have taken it? Damn right you take it. So here we are. And we're going to have home ice. And uh, if you remember the game that night, we stepped on the ice. You couldn't hear John Amaranti sing a note on the National Anthem. It was a complete bedlam in that building. And that gave us that momentum to go up to nothing in the first period. And it was the fans that led us along. Uh, but we were hanging on by our chinny chin chin at the end, but uh, there is no, there's no replays on the score sheet, just a bunch of names on the cup yeah. that erased three generations of misery. One name that didn't show on the cup that was there for a big, long part of that ride was somebody who worked in the dressing room. Uh, Benny, yeah. tell, tell our audience the, the Benny story. Well, Benny Patrizzi was a uh, a little Italian guy from the Bronx who fought in World War II and was wounded in 1942 or 43 and came to work with the Rangers as a dressing room attendant. And basically, Benny would just pick up towels, shine your shoes. I mean, I can recall going in the room and thinking, those are mine? That's what my <laughs> shoes look like? That's because you were too cheap to pay the 10 cents to get somebody to shine your shoes. So, uh, you know, Benny was a, he would stop in the room each day. We do our stretch. Eddie Olachek ran our stretch and he would, in his Brooklyn accent, he would stop and say, let's go Rangers. And he'd carry on. <laughs> we love Benny. Right. And then when we got to game seven, Benny walked and he stopped in the middle of the room. He said, Rangers. And I'm, oh, this is different. Uh, and the whole city was putting pressure on us right from the stock exchange, Florida, you name it. Like I, we were wearing disguises. So people would, well, Hills, it was 54 years. Hey, you don't have to remind me. Uh, and so Benny stopped and he said, Rangers, I don't care if you win or lose tonight. I love you guys. Let's go, Rangers. He's, he's the only guy who put no wow, pressure. He gave me chills. And so uh, when we got our cup rings and we got them a little while later, they had this little thing called the lockout. So we had to wait a little bit to get yep. them. Uh, but Benny didn't get one. And Mark Messier made sure that he got a ring. So we reordered rings to get Benny his ring, uh, presented him with the ring. He thought he was getting fired because he didn't get a ring and wasn't really heralded with the group as we got ours. And so thought he had done something wrong and was going to get canned. And we gave him his ring. 
and he died a year later. So wow. that's Mark Messier, Everybody Mattered. And uh, Benny Patrizzi, who had very little to do with that cup, but he had lots to do with the cup. Mark recognized it. So uh, I'm, I'm so proud we did that for Benny. And uh, boy, cute, cute guy who we all loved. He was the best. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the crave. Download the 7Now delivery app and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious Crave Crushers to your door almost before you can say, fuel me up, Sev. You know the Crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just eleven sixty nine, order a large hot from the oven in minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a two liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats 24/7. It just seems so emblematic though heels of of the guys who were so long suffering through that half century of waiting to get the cup uh in New York. It just seems like I don't know, just poetic justice the way it all played out. So when they redid the dressing room, okay? Mike Richter and I used to sit in the back corner side by side. There was a little bit of a pole in the way, so you know, if Mike Keenan said something stupid, we could under our breath, you know, <laughs> and mouth. what an idiot he is. You saying something back there, Rector Healy? No, no, nothing. Nothing, 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 nothing over here. Nope. Uh, so when they redid the dressing room uh, after we had won the cup, there were, there were like five urns of bodies above where Mike Rector and I were sitting. So again, Wait, seriously, seriously. So these fans, you know, my dad hasn't seen a championship. And they would take their ashes and and put them in the ceiling, and they could hide behind the pole and do it, so you can't couldn't see on the tours. Uh, so, oh man, I had no, I've never heard that story before. People watching us for no wonder we were they they had their eye on us the whole man. time. But anyways, but that just shows the passion. Like these people just desperately wanted to see championship, and I can still recall going to the games and and you would see an Ed Jockerman sweater. Yeah. You would see a John Davidson sweater and you'd see a Mike Richter sweater. Like you had Eddie and John and Mike and people with the team forever. And so you've got your grandfather, your father and your son. And so those generations got to celebrate something very special. And that the celebration heels in in New York. I don't think I bought a drink since in New York. (laughs) But quite frankly, uh, you know, the city deserved it. Right. Yeah. Truly, truly deserved it. Is it true you lost the cup? Well, I'm glad you brought that up. What's actually, I'm going to blame that. But so after the parade, we were to go to MTV to do a, a little hit just to kind of, again, everyone wants to celebrate. Everyone so wants Sally. Nick and I are the two hippest guys. Not really. <laughs> go to MTV. Now, we're in a police car, but I've got this brilliant idea. We should stop at the oldest pub in New York. Tradition. So- here, right? Place called McSorley's. Yep. Off we go. Siren going, cup buck, buckled in, stop at McSorley's, walk in with the cup, cup kind of gets handed to somebody. We're ordering, and they only have like light or dark beer. You can't order beer, it's just light yeah. or dark, whatever's in there. This that. is before the keeper of the cup, right? So there was nobody with you guys. Oh, right? no, we actually destroyed it, but that's another. <laughs> uh, so Oh, we've got to come back to that. You can't just throw that out there. We destroyed it and leave Nick it. So, and I, go ahead. Go to your story. We kind of turn to look at each other. I look at him. He looks at me and we say, where the hell's the cup? I thought you had it. I don't have it. I thought you said you had it. Stra- oh, you're in the, you're in the pub now. 
you're in the pub. So the two guys that have the least amount to do with winning the cup, not even an hour after the parade have officially lost it. And so APB goes out to the police to say, well, let's find this thing. They found it like eight blocks away. The, the group had taken it and said, we're having our own party. Cup's gone. Just a second. So you guys are in a pub drinking. Someone picks up the Stanley Cup and leaves and you don't notice? Well, it was the mass of humanity. It's not, it's not oh, like okay. you're standing there like, you know, the places that, you know, that you go where there's nobody in it. I mean, it was jammed. Thanks, Thanks Heels. Thanks, brother. <laughs> I just turned my head for a second. Uh, you know, they're signing autographs. And, of course, you know, Nick is charging for those autographs because that's what Nick does. Yeah, that uh, was his opportunity right there. Chance of making money. Uh, yeah, but no, it was gone. And uh, we got it back. But uh, there was moments there when we stopped breathing because how the heck did these two guys from southern Ontario lose the cup the first time they got it? We did. Is that when you said that? Is that when it got wrecked? Like you just you kind of just flippantly say we we wrecked the cup. Like what well, happened? It was you know at that time you literally were given the cup and there was no keeper, there was no security. You could just take it. Uh, I can recall picking it up at the South Street Seaport. They just drop off the blue case and I put it in the car and I was gone. And it's yours. You pull up at the airport that day and the customs asked me what's in the case. Said the Stanley Cup. They, <laughs> They didn't even look. They're like, oh, okay. <laughs> Could have been James Duffy in the case. I don't know. He would have fit. But, yeah, the uh, the cup, somebody, you know, and you'll have this habit of lifting it from the, the top. Yeah. Yeah. And drink not, out of it. It's not to be lifted from the top. And one of our players did, and the top came off. Now you got not, not ideal. Not ideal. It's not a chalice. You don't pass the cup and the top part around. You need the whole thing. Uh, so he decided to solder it, which is a smart thing, except don't use lead solder. It's a silver cup. Oh, man. So that changed. And so Phil Pritchard and Scott North and his group, uh, we had them. We've got them jobs now for the rest of their life. And they have been to every Stanley Cup party. And um, we've gotten no kickback by giving them that employment. They should give you points on their salary since they made a career out of it now. Take aeroplane points. Just get me into a lounge because I'm super <laughs> prisoner. Please. Something. So you so you have your run with the Rangers, and now you're a few good years there, and you end up finishing your career as a Toronto Maple Leaf, your last four years. You grew up, for those who don't know this, you grew up just outside of uh, Toronto in Pickering near the nuclear plant, which explains an awful lot about yourself. Uh, you have an opportunity now to decide where you want to go. You end up in Toronto, but much like the Islanders versus the Rangers thing, you almost ended up at the absolute antithesis of being a Toronto Maple Leaf, because you almost ended up as a Montreal Canadian. How did that? My glass shaking. <laughs> Does it give you the shakes now? Even still, twenty. No, you know what? Hey, at the end of the day, uh, you know, I, I was negotiating with both teams. There was a couple teams. Uh, there was only two free agent goalies at the time. There was Andy Moog and me. That's yeah. it. Right? And so. You know, Montreal was a team that was interested, and their offer was was clearly better than Toronto. Uh, Ken Dryden was a general manager of the Leafs and very reluctant to make any move in any way. We all know Ken, very thoughtful. Yeah. Yeah. And so I uh, got down to the end, and I, I came into Montreal. Uh, clearly, I couldn't work anything out to make it make sense financially. And so I went and got my medical done with Dr. Mulder. 
I passed with flying colors. I don't know how, but I did. And then was sitting in the, I uh, did the tour of the dressing room. It was beautiful, majestic. Welcome to Montreal. Oh my goodness. Like the, the pipe band played me in. It was just a, a parade. It was beautiful. And I'm sitting in the coach's office. They're all there. The general manager, uh, Ray Jean Uwul, Dave King was the coach. And I call my agent to say that. And it, this is like, I'm all excited. This is great. The dressing room's great. Everything's great. And in the interim, my agent had called Ken Dryden and said, he's signing with Montreal. <laughs> no, he's not. He's signing with Toronto. Well, your offer's not good enough. So he matched the offer. So all excited in Montreal. This is great. They want to have a press conference, blah, blah, blah. All I hear from my agent is, get out. Get out fast and keep a low, keep a, keep your head down. So now I've got six esteemed hockey minds looking at me, and I'm, get out. What is, define that. How am I supposed to get out, right? So Send a car. Anyway, I did come up with a story to let me escape the office and potentially if I wanted to sign, come back later that day to do it. But I had to check with my family and all those excuses that, you know, I felt like Ralph Cramden on who wrote <laughs> Wadi River, you know, for those that are younger, Google it, you'll figure it out. Yeah. Uh, it shows my age, but anyways, the uh, left. And then that night called Ray John to let him know that, uh, it was my dream to play in Toronto and yeah. his dream probably to play in Montreal. So respect what my dream was and, and I'm going to play in Toronto. And he hung up on me and had a couple of swear words and that was it. <laughs> so you got to throw on a Toronto Maple Leaf jersey. Yeah. Which to me, you know, I, I, I can still remember when I was five. There's only a few things I remember. I don't know what you, you probably are in the same boat as me. I remember crying first day of kindergarten. I remember yes. that. I remember skating for the first time. Remember that not very well, but I remember, and I remember watching the Leafs win the Cup in '67. Mm. That's it. Yeah. And I don't think I remembered anything from five till ten. I don't know where those five years went, but I don't remember still it. celebrating the '67 win. But uh, that was, you know, again, you, your father comes over and mom comes over from Scotland, and everybody tells him the Leaf. That's the team you got to watch. And you know, Con Smythe was a military guy, so it was a natural thing. And uh, so I thought they'd win the Cup every year. Every year, they just keep winning it. Yeah, and so became a Leaf fan then, and uh, and then you know got a chance then to, you know, put that sweater on. That was a dream. But beyond that, it was more the challenge of doing what we did in New York. In New York, yeah, finally bringing a winner to the city. Three generations again, and can you yeah. imagine if you could do it in Toronto? And whoever you had does a good run in '93, we had good runs in each of the years. '99, oh, sorry, in '99, yeah, semifinals. We lost to New Jersey. Uh, the Niedermeyer incident that took some yeah. wind out of our sails, to say the least. Um, should have beat Buffalo. They went on to yeah. lose to Dallas. Could have beat Carolina. You know, we were that close to being up two games to none on the road. Yeah. Uh, they scored late to tie the uh, the series at 1-1. So there were opportunities, but we just – it's a hard trophy to win. And uh, there's always 23 other guys that are looking at you going, not by me today, son. Like. Yeah. Yeah. It matters to me too. So, but, but, but a, a good effort in, in every way and good yeah. teams and well coached. Pat Quinn was a wonderful man again. So I had the, I had the pleasure of having Pat twice, but some really good coaches in my career, which, you know, it, it helped to, to, to mold me in that second journey that I have. For sure. In conversation with Glenn Healy, the executive director of the NHL alumni 
Association, uh, 15 years in the NHL on the 7-Eleven Overtime podcast. Uh, you mentioned briefly in passing, you got piped in. That's been a big part of your life. I, I, I tell you what, I've enjoyed watching some videos of you because it's not just a pastime for you. You've taken bagpipe very, very seriously, and it's taken you to some pretty incredible places around the world, including Vimy Ridge. Tell us about that. Yeah, you know, the uh, it, it's a very unique instrument, right? And I would highly recommend that. You need at least two full doors in your house to find a place to play because your wife and kids and dogs aren't going to like it. I'm just letting you know. It's a loud instrument. It is but what it is. For me, it has led to so many great things. And, you know, having the chance to play with Paul McCartney. Mulligan Tire is the song that he plays with the pipes. Did you actually meet him? You you played with him. Did yeah, you he, he was gracious. You know, when he first came in, uh, they told us we we're going to do a sound check the day of the concert at, at four o'clock, or he was going to tune his guitars at four o'clock. And, and Paul McCartney's got like 40 guitars on stage. Like it's, and so tune and he does them all himself. He doesn't hire someone to do it. He does it. But the one guitar he plays with Mulligan tire has to be tuned to the instrument has to be tuned to a different pitch. I can't go to him. He's got to come to us. And so at four o'clock, sure enough, the call went out. Yes. He wants to do a sound check with the pipe band and we raced out to do it. And he walked around to every single person and shook every single person's hand. That's awesome. And, uh, you know, he said, here's the deal. Band on the run. Yesterday, Mulligan Tire, let it be. We'll come get you at 1114. At 11.14, they came, they got the band, and the band came up from the uh, floor of the stage. And it's an 18-beat hold while it's just drones that get mic'd across the entire crowd, and then the melody kicks in. And I've got a great picture of him. He signed it for all the guys. Everyone got one. And if you look at it closely, you see this little white head <laughs> up like this over the stage. It's Matt Sundin because Matt's had his eye injury uh, against the Ottawa Centers and couldn't travel with the team. I've forgotten about that. Yeah, he couldn't go on a plane. So – Matt's is in the picture. Now, it's just a little bit of his hair when he had hair. When he had but hair. That is Matt Sundin on stage with the pipe band. But, uh, yeah, that that was great. We did the concert at Carnegie Hall for 9-11. Yeah. Again, very powerful, moving. You know, that was a tragic time. We were the last Canadian band in to ground zero when they had the first year, the anniversary. Uh, the yeah. D-Day Beach is exceptional. Uh, just, again, powerful and moving. To think that the day we were there, the, the the tide was the same as what it would have been on D-Day. And I'm telling you, uh, the courage and the ability of these guys to get and take that was beyond belief. Uh, but Vimy Ridge was was a real powerful one in the sense that uh, you could literally throw a football from one of uh, the German side to the British side. And how we took that ridge, and it was the birth of a nation for Canada, is beyond me. Uh, they would they would train in armaments and just lob them one after another. And uh, I recall uh, the after, the day after we had uh, the the actual event at Vimy where we represented Canada, uh, there was a, a parade. And it was in this little town called Arras. And uh, Corey Cross actually came and took part in the parade as yeah, well. I'm, I'm inviting Cross, all these guys to our fun events. But um, 
As we got closer and closer to the city square where the queen, the president and the prime minister were, you know, it was like 10 deep, 12 deep, 20 deep, 30. Wow. And then they stopped us before we got to the city square. Uh, and then we had the RCMP horses in front of us with a Canadian flag shaved on their rumps. And uh, they stopped me and they said, Mr. Healy, please wait. We waited and waited. And uh, and then it was the call. Ladies and gentlemen, Canada. Oh. The place went crazy. And uh, I can recall walking around. I, I couldn't drink a beer because I couldn't hold one. I had yeah, so yeah, yeah. There was a lady in the window. and She's called us up and a bunch of us went up. Well, she was a four-year-old girl in that window. Oh, heels. You're giving me the frick. You're, I got tingles. <laughs> he was giving us pocket watches and crystal clocks. And I'm like, hey, I never thought. I'm just a bagpiper. Oh, Leave me man. alone. Right? Uh, but it was an exceptional experience. One funny remark about it. Uh, no one was allowed on the monument. Nobody. Until the day of. But we all wanted to get on the monument for a picture. Because you can't really for be sure. Stopped. Yeah, you're like right you're there. Queen and piping in the military. Okay. Doesn't look good doing a selfie. So <laughs> try to get on the monument. And the land is actually owned by the Canadian government that the monument sits on. Yeah. And so the band was like, Heels, you go do the talking. How am I going to get us on the monument? Right? So I'm thinking. You've always been a good negotiator. I'll do my best. So the door opens for the bus. And uh, there's a guy looking at us. He looks at me. He probably knows what I'm going to ask. And the answer is probably going to be no. And he says, heels. Now I'm thinking, I'm in. How like, does he know you? We are. So he's a hockey fan. Oh, okay. We're on the monument. This, going good, guys. You know, here we go. <laughs> then he says to me, I'm an Ottawa Senators fan. Not going yeah. good, buddy. We're not getting on today. <laughs> oh. Anyways, he did let us on. And we managed to take some great pictures. And uh, I, I wow. don't know who he is, but he was an Ottawa Senators fan. He was a hockey fan. And he led us on the monument. He probably got fired after that, but uh, we we had an incredible trip. So, yes, piping has led me all over the world, doing a whole bunch of different things with a bunch of great entertainers. And it's a great passion. It really is. Man. And couldn't give it up for anything. Some of the things that you've gone through is just absolutely insane. And, and now, I mean, I, I joke about you being a good negotiator. The stuff you've done with the NHL Alumni Association – since was it 2017 you started with them as the executive director in 2017 when i think of all the guys i grew up watching i gotta tell you heels one of the sad stories i have for me personally is bumping into the pierre palats and the guys the old guys who who played before the real money who played before the real disability insurance who pay, played before the benefit packages that you guys ended up getting and the guys especially today don't get and, I've, and I always remember thinking as a young guy in broadcasting, how is nobody taking care of these guys? The NHL, the guys who are currently playing right now, how are they not taking care of these guys? And when you went in there in 2017, quite frankly, those guys still were not being taken care of. There were still a lot of guys who needed counseling, therapy, physical therapy, and sometimes just financial help. And as much as the guys were trying to make it happen, it wasn't happening. But then beginning in 2017, when you took over to your credit and the guys were working with your credit, it's night and day. What's going on right now? What did you see when you walked in there on day one 
And what are you seeing today? Well, the one thing I do see is a sweater behind you with a special name on the back. I can't see the whole name, but if you don't know what it stands for, it's called Gretzky. Like, all right. So before I took the job, I met with Wayne and I basically said, okay, baby Jesus. Uh, (laughs) Which is actually, it's on his passport. If if, if I'm doing this, uh, I need you in the manger come Christmas morning. Like we, we need to have you on board and we need to have Mario on board and the flower on board and Sundin on board. And we set out as our mission together uh, to honor the past. That's our mission statement. So there's a foundation of what we are all about. So those names that you just talked about, let's honor the past because they paved the way for these current guys to go drive on these roads. They should be revered. And then my job was pretty simple is how do I make tomorrow better than today? And I can do that in law. There are a lot of guys who tried to do that same thing. They couldn't get it done, man, because the response wasn't like people weren't rallying around him. Let's be honest. No. And it has been the opposite for me. And I guess I'm, I'm lucky. We built a good team and maybe it's just the time was right. Maybe it is uh, that, that moment where we seized it and we said, we're going to make a difference for players. Uh, we're going to build up a library of services so that when my phone rings, I never have to say, I'm sorry to a player or a wife or a wife that calls me and says, I want my husband back. I don't know what's wrong. I don't have to say, sorry, I'm out. Don't have any help. Or a kid that calls and says something's wrong with dad. Can we get dad back? Well, in fairness, though, Heels, if the resources weren't there, what were you able to do, right? So what we did was we changed the entire philosophy of what we are. We are not a bunch of guys that are traveling around Ontario playing beer league hockey games. We're not a T-shirt shop. We're not a friendscaping shop. We are a big business with a massive brand that if you were to mimic the Players Association business model and put 400 players into a video game and 400 players into the only alumni uh, hockey card set, no other alumni has their own standalone set. We do. Not even football has that. We have it. So once you make that change and you create that business foundation, then all of a sudden you have a chance at creating some of these library services that players need and can utilize, whether it's mental wellness whether it's mental wellness in the United States, whether it's a chief medical officer is one of the best neurosurgeons in the world. All of that stuff, yes, requires a business base, uh, but we totally changed the model to we're no longer friendscaping. We are going to make a difference for players. And it was not as difficult as you may think, but we had to have the right people. I was not even a licensed lawyer, as I was told by the league, uh, but I damn well went and got one. I was going to say, just find one. Uh, I'd already had him in the car waiting, so just stay in the car. You'll be in in a second. Yeah. Uh, I, I didn't have a licensing lawyer. We grabbed one of the best in the world, Adam Larry. So we built ourselves a team of some some big, big people that are good at what they do in the game and uh, not the player's standpoint, but from a library services standpoint. But, you know, now my phone doesn't have to ring and sorry is what I say. We, we have answers yeah. for it. A lot of families that are just looking for help and hope. Look, at, I'm selling alumni whiskey. I'm not selling liquid. I'm not. You may drink it. I'm selling help and hope. I take that money that we make from the whiskey and I go put together a team of social workers that can do what I can't do with my Western Michigan degree. And, hey, I, I worked at the Pickering Nuclear Power Plant. That does not give me the right to handle a suicide call uh, or someone that's got an acute intervention. 
And I think that's the biggest thing. Uh, if we look at everyone's journey as a triangle and the top would be acute intervention. So that would be a player who needs to go to rehab or is really in a bad spot. It's all the stuff around that we built up, the player services, the library services. We've inverted the triangle so that we don't get players to the top of the triangle for acute intervention. So that's been our focus. It's taken a number of years to create. And I'm proud to say that when I leave and turn the lights off, the next guy turns them on, it'll be a better place. Wow. What's next? What needs to happen next? Healthcare. That's what I want. And I'll say this with the league. Uh, you probably wouldn't even have noticed this, but uh, when training camps open, I always knew when my my medical was, right? I had a physical every year. Day one at camp, get my physical. Yeah. Then I retire and I, what physical? I don't need one. I'm fine. You know, yeah. I, I wouldn't even begin to ask when your last physical was, right? Who knows? No. But you know, as, as players, we knew what it was. And then we went a long time without. And there are a couple players that maybe if they'd got some attention, Brian Marchment, maybe yeah. there would be a different result. Or maybe a Dale Howarchuk. If Ducky had a chance to go in and get a medical intro. sooner. And so when training camp opened, uh, every alumni, no matter where you play, you live in Calgary, you go into the Calgary doctors. So Gary Bettman, Colin Campbell, and Bill Daly opened up their doors, and we had over 300 players wow. get medicals on the, the day that the players got their medicals, and we uncovered a whole bunch of medical issues that we never would have uncovered. PSA levels that are high, prostate cancer issues, heart murmurs, pacemakers, and so, you know, there's a small example of, you know, a little tweak, but the final stop for me, let's get health care for all the players. Let's not, and I get we have health care in Ontario and Canada, but do you really, if you're a great player and you're in the Hall of Fame, you really need to die in a ward with three other people watching you? Yeah. Can we not have a little bit more dignity than that and have that ability to pay them back for what they've done? And so I won't stop till I get that. It's about time, brother. It's about time. Guys just getting what they worked so hard for for so many years. Man, uh, I got to tell you, Heels, it's, there have been some fun stories, but there's some really, really encouraging stories of stuff that's going on and some great moments. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you sharing these stories with us. Uh, we're excited about where you're going with this, and I hope you just keep keep telling us and giving us you know, where you're going next and what you're doing next and give us some ideas and stories that we could share. Cause there's so many great stories out there right now. Yeah. And uh, you know, that's, that's the greatest thing, right? The players that have built this game, uh, they deserve it. Um, yeah. They earned it. They deserve it. And we'll keep pushing until, Hey, I can make tomorrow better than today for anybody. And then when I get to tomorrow, I'll worry about the next day, the next day, I'll worry about Saturday when I get to Friday. And when I get to Saturday, trust me, I'll make Sunday better too. So, but uh, we've got a great team and what makes it are the players. They're the ones that have gathered and rallied and said to me, we got your back, go do what you got to do. It's the players. It's not me. Can't do this alone. And it's all those guys that are up in the rafters. It's all the guys that are in the hall of fame. They're the ones that have done it and they've rallied and they're not, this is a big brand and they are not stopping till we get what the players think we deserve, nor will I. Well said, my friend. Well said. Glenn, great catching up with you, buddy. Take care of yourself. Cheers. NHL alumni director and Stanley Cup champion, Glenn Healy. 
The Overtime Podcast is proudly presented by 7-Eleven. Before leaving the rink, order your favorite Slurpee, fresh, 100% premium Arabica coffee, hot from the oven pizza and wings, pint of ice cream, or even a carton of milk, a dozen eggs, and a loaf of bread from the 7Now app and Team 7-Eleven. We'll have your order ready for pickup 24-7. Hey, if you missed any parts of the show, don't worry. Visit our website at overtimepodcast.ca where you can both listen and subscribe to future shows. 7-Eleven's Overtime Podcast can be found on the iHeartRadio app, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or any of your favorite podcast platforms. Until next week, I'm Gino Retta saying so long, hockey fans, and thanks for joining us on the 7-Eleven Overtime Podcast. Here are a couple of hot, tasty ways to crush the Crave. Download the 7-Now Delivery app, and 7-Eleven will have your hot and delicious Crave Crushers to your door almost before you can say... Fuel me up, Sev. You know the crave I'm talking about. The one that's whispering wings or pizza in your ear right now. For just $11.69, order a large hot-from-the-oven-in-minutes pepperoni pizza. Add a 2-liter Coke or Pepsi for $2. 7-Eleven is your go-to for fast delivery of Slurpee, groceries, essentials, meals, snack and treats 24-7.